0: COVID-19 is not the first dangerous germ that's confronted mankind, and frankly, nor is it going to be the last. Yet we're treating it as though it is. It's taken on this epic role in our lives. Well, that's suicide for all of us. If we want to return to some semblance of normalcy, we must understand that the world is and always has been a dangerous place. And we have to adapt the lessons that we're learning from COVID of hand-washing, improved sleep, and other self-defense strategies so that we can reduce the risk of this and whatever germs come along our way, in the future. A little perspective can go a very long way, and that's what I want to give today, a little bit of perspective on this very big issue. That's why I've invited Dr. David Katz, the founder and president of the True Health Initiative, to join me. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget, please rate and review it and share this. And please stay safe and stay healthy and stay strong. Hi, Facebook. Welcome to, uh, this is like lunch hour with Sarah Heiner and and our, and our experts in our immune boosting um, series and conversations that we've been having. So thank you for joining me today. Um, super excited today. I've got a very special guest, um, very big deal doctor. Dr. David Katz is joining me. Um, and we're going to try and put COVID in perspective today. Right? This is, it's taken on this mythic role in life. And we want to put it in perspective into the world so that we can as the world is reopening and the headlines are saying, oh, but it's spiking. And no, but there are, there are more more um, cases coming up in these, in these pockets to understand it and try to calm the fear so that we can get back to the world. Um, let me just remind you, if you have any questions at all that you want to ask Dr. Katz or ask me through this, just post them in um, the chat there and they will come along to me. And then we've got actually our past videos on a YouTube channel. If you want to go to YouTube, Bottomline Inc. uh, Bottomline Inc. is the YouTube channel. Um, You know, the name of the game is Strengthening Your Immune, and Bottomline put together a free book to help everybody. Other perspective beyond, we know masks. A lot of people are now learning about zinc. Um, to strengthen yourself and strengthen your defenses. But we actually put together some of our greatest hits from our experts, our many experts through the years. You can download that for free. There'll be a link in um, the Facebook comments, but bottomlineink.com forward slash immune boost. So it's a great, great product, totally free. Just want everybody as healthy as they can. Um, and I think that's it. All right. So let's talk, let me introduce to you this um, Dr. Katz, who's sitting there, I have to look at all my bullets because he's got a very extensive, long list of um, honors. So Dr. Katz is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, um, and, and he just left that recently to pursue some new businesses to be able to help with the health of the planet. Um, he's the president of the True Health Initiative, a nonprofit organization established to defend and disseminate the science, sense, and global expert consensus about healthy, sustainable diet and lifestyle. In the service of adding years to lives and life to years around the globe. So, you know, again, it's about what we can do to extend our lives and our healthy choices. He's the CEO of Diet ID Inc., digital diet assessment and behavior change platform for healthcare, wellness, and research organizations. In addition to all of that, he's published over 200 scientific articles, textbook chapters, 18 books to date, including multiple editions of leading textbooks on both prevent on preventive medicine and nutrition. Um, He's invented assorted research methodologies to better analyze the impact of lifestyle on our health, which is so important because so much of that is not necessarily researched the way that the drugs and the surgeries are. Right, Dr. Katz?
1: Exactly right, Sarah.
0: And then his newest book with one of bottom line's favorite favorite food food experts, How to Eat, um, co-authored with food writer and cookbook author Mark Bittman. And we use his recipes all the time. And he's a a bottom line favorite. Um, So that's a great, great book. Um, and he's one of the most prolific and pro- uh, prominent medical exper- experts. <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> let's start that one again. Um, David is one of the most prolific and prominent medical experts in the world of preventive healthcare. You gotta love doing things at home. And phones are ringing. Um, and you can learn all about about him at davidcatzmd.com. So, David, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Good to be with you, sir. Thanks for the kind intro, and and just to double down on the, uh, you know, the, the the love for Mark Bittman. Um, one of my favorites too. Great friend, great author, a great thinker, um, and a great partner for the book. So.
0: Well, and it's interesting. He will digress for one moment. I mean, he had his own life challenge. He had a stroke, I believe, right, and had to suddenly change. You know, his, the chefs that are never so healthy, and suddenly he went, "Wow, I'm in trouble. I need to make some changes to be able." To to have a you know save my life.
1: Yeah, and so you know really that in in very good shape now and a, a real advocate for um, sustainable food systems, healthy planet, healthy people, but also reconciling all of that with the joy of good food. He is you know obviously a, a foodie and yes. and I think you know we both agree and and that that's not a theme that runs through the book. You want to derive pleasure from good food. You also want to derive pleasure from good health, and people shouldn't have to choose between the two. So, you know, Mark famously wrote How to Cook Everything. Yes. We, we, we were joking around with our publisher, maybe we should call the book How to Eat, But Not Everything. Uh, <laughs> but we, just, we just left that part out. Well,
0: there's the everything but in moderation, right? It's <laughs> okay. It. It's okay. Not, quite, like not quite quite have an American-sized portion of it, then you're following. Yeah, right. All <laughs> right, well, let's talk about this American-sized portion of COVID nineteen, you know this oversized. So this this virus, and it's a novel virus, and nobody ever had it before. And there's no question about how serious it is. But it seems to have taken on this like it's become this epic, mythic germ that's taken on this enormous presence in people's lives. And like, why why is that happening? Like, just yeah. So so perspective on it.
1: Yeah. So uh, you know, it's it's interesting, and and it's characteristic of the times we live in that almost all of the opinion expert or otherwise you run into has gravitated to opposing corners. So there's the, you know, the sky is falling. This is the ultimate calamity. Everybody needs to hide under their desk, you know, and wait for a vaccine versus this is massively exaggerated. It's no big deal. I don't know anybody who's had this thing and, you know, it's mostly confabulated and we should all get back in the water, including grandma and never mind the riptide and the sharks. You know I mean the truth inevitably is the, the the what should be the common ground in the middle. we really need to respect this virus. It is a serious pathogen on the other hand, there really is an opportunity for us to engage in in some semblance of normal life because the the risks have been massively distorted so you know partly what 's happened is that this became a global uh, health issue, you know, and arguably the, the most complex and challenging public health crisis in in living memory. So once you've got something like SARS or MERS, and it, it has expanded globally, is it a big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. And it, you know, it, it calls up, you know, memory of the flu pandemic of 1918, which killed 50 million people. And so, yes, it, it made sense to treat this with massive Respect. But what what happens then in the internet age, in the age of twenty-four hour news programming, is that there is this constant fixed attention on the new shiny exotic thing. It's a great news story. People want to hear more. Once you get people worried, they want to tune in to get the next update and the next update. And it's like a slow-motion train wreck. You know, you just can't look away. Well, you know there's nothing better for the news media and social media than something that people can't look away from. The problem then becomes you get you, whatever the native risks and we 'll talk about those and you know they're meaningful but they're not calamitous really uh, but whatever the native risks of a particular crisis if if that one crisis populates every news cycle, you get massive risk distortion right. so you know, we, we've been hearing for weeks on end, it feels like lifetimes, but I guess it's just been weeks, you know, about every COVID-related death. Every COVID-related death is essentially national news and especially. And wacky symptom.
0: And wacky symptom. That and
1: wacky symptom and person
0: somewhere that you have no idea what other issues are going on in that body, but they got pinky uh,
1: covid well, right, right. It affected their toes, or they had Kawasaki disease, or and and especially what you hear about. And you know, there there are some aphorisms that apply to the way the news media work. One is if it bleeds, it leads. The other is comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. So if you start getting comfortable that you know a thing or two about COVID, it mostly spares kids. Got to run with a headline that you know one kid somewhere got really sick and died. One young health professional got really sick and died. And each time we get an instance of that, national news. Now those are tragedies. My condolences to anyone so affected. My heart goes out. These are absolute tragedies, full stop. But the simple fact is, you know, a child dies in a bathtub almost every day in the United States. Um, you, know, you know, and if every one of those stories was national news, uh, we'd have a national moratorium on bathing. You know, I mean, seriously. Uh, and and Every day, oh. tragically, a child dies riding their bike outside, or right. you know I mean, so, so the issue is not, you know, do we or don't we respect the, the tragedies attached to COVID? Of course, of course we do. But you could get the impression, as, as a result of the fixation on the pandemic, that nobody ever dies of anything else in the United States. Right. And the, re, the reality is,, you know, and, and we're a population of 330 million people. We are mortal, we're all going to die someday. So we get old, and it's what we do. So just a little bit less than 1% of the population turns over every year. Some of that's untimely and tragic, much of it is just the circle of life. But what that means is, on any given day in America, without a pandemic, about 8,000 people die. 8,000 people a day. Right. But you know, I don't think there was any acknowledgement of that throughout the coverage of the pandemic. I don't think there was any acknowledgement that 1800 people die daily in this country of heart disease alone. And then that's been going on for years and years. Imagine if every death to heart disease were national news, because, you know, from my perspective as a preventive medicine specialist, heart disease is almost completely preventable. Every death from heart disease is a preventable tragedy. So I think they should all be national news. That would be 1800 nationally transmitted media stories every day. heart. We would all be freaking out. So that's the problem. So COVID deserves respect. It's a serious problem. It's a disease we don't fully understand. We're learning about it on the fly. It has killed a lot of people around the world, bad actor for sure, but massive distortion of the magnitude of risk because we have focused on this for weeks on end to the exclusion of all else. And you know, again, it's absolutely tragic that that 100,000 people in the United States have died of complications related to COVID. Yep. But you, but answer. you get that news without any notion that you know something like three million people almost die in the United States every year from miscellaneous causes because the population is constantly turning over. Those two things have to be reconciled for you to really understand what's the denominator. You know how how big an impact is this really having? What is the likelihood of this hurting me?
0: Well, and I want, we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those other things that people are dying from besides heart disease, which I'll call it, much, much of it is self-inflicted, that there are other germs out there. Because one of the things that's scary about COVID is it's uncontrollable. You can't see it, it shows up. So I wanna talk about some of those in a bit. But is there a broader cultural thing that's gone on that, that this is feeding some deeper fear in people where you know every time you turn on TV, there's some ad for some drug that's suddenly creating some ailment for you you didn't know you have before? Ask well, your doctor if you need this. So we're creating this entire culture of disease fear and that we all have this stuff that we should fear and live in fear and that the, the medical powers that be are going to save us with this pill.
1: Maybe. And, and certainly the idea that everything you know deserves a pill, I think does de-emphasize the incredible and far greater power of lifestyle as medicine and how much potential control you have over your own medical destiny. So I definitely want to talk about that. But you know, I I think the specific issues related to COVID are, as you were saying, it is transmissible. So there's that feeling like I can't control my risk. Yeah, yeah, I know heart disease is a bigger threat. Diabetes is a bigger threat. Stroke, cancer, bigger threats. But I could do something about my risk for those. And so that's okay. This could just jump out of the shadows and get me, which, by the way, isn't entirely true. And we want to talk about things people can do to reduce their risk of a bad outcome from COVID. This is not totally unmanageable. But I think the transmissibility, I think infectious disease stirs people's anxieties in a different way. I think the bigger issue, though, Sarah, is the timeline. So when I, you know, again, a a whole career of counseling people about reducing their risk for heart disease, diabetes, it's a hard sell because, you know, if you eat something tasty or, you know, you lounge on the couch today, it may feel good today, immediate gratification. The thought about heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia is the stuff I need to do to protect myself, you know. I have plenty of time. I could do it next week or the week after, the week after, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And of course, tomorrow never comes until after you've had a calamitous event. But it's just that feeling like if I wanted to do something about it, I could. Whereas, you know, again, with, with COVID, it feels like you can't. And then that's compounded by the fact that those things happen over years and decades. COVID could kill you next week.
0: Because There's a real. Right. Well, well, who you know, kill you, but okay, then when you look people, at the stats, well, well, it,
1: it, 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 no, no, that no. no we'll, time, we'll get to that. Right? No, no. The issue is that it, you know, if this thing were going to kill you, it could do it fast. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it you could get it and you could be dead in a week. And yes. so that's that's what's activating the fear. The issue is, the human nervous system is programmed to perceive risk along a certain timeline. Uh, you know, it's basically an endowment of evolutionary biology. You know, we we, we had to worry about predators on the savanna. You know, they, they didn't take weeks to stalk us. You know, the, the threats came in seconds, right. minutes, maybe hours and days was certainly pushing it, but nothing of any consequence played out over years and decades. So the fight or flight response, we've all felt it when our adrenal glands, you know, tingle and, and release that stimulation. You know, there's a siren behind you and you feel that sudden surge. You know, that's a, that's a quick response to a threat that we can recognize. You don't get that from type two diabetes. You don't get that from heart disease. I think people do get that from the anxiety related to COVID. So that's another part of this. It's the perception that, wow, this could come get me really quickly. So I'm, I'm acutely anxious. It, it, it really it, it tickles the adrenal glands. It activates the fight or flight response. And then finally, it's new and shiny. The, the exotic always commands our attention. So you know it doesn't matter that malaria kill malaria is infectious. It kills more people around the world than COVID. HIV kills more people around the world than COVID. There are many other infections that do, but they're long familiar. It's fascinating that there's this eager desperation for a COVID vaccine while there is you know strong anti-vax sentiment about all of the really important infectious diseases for which we have established vaccines. What's the difference? It's not that those diseases don't kill people. It's that, that you know there's contempt for the familiar,
0: right? And they've got they've come to know them as well. Um, the and so the other thing is that's interesting that's gone on. The goal was bend the curve, and now suddenly we've got this goal that you know that people are intolerant. As you said, people die all the time, and that the perspective we can't get out of our houses if everybody is now afraid that anyone in their life is going to get sick, and that they can't. We know people who are. Even if they're healthy, and at very small odds, and something came out today, over forty-three, forty-three percent of the people that have died were in nursing home facilities. I think something like that, with a huge percentage, um, and that so most people aren't getting it. Young people aren't really getting it. We've got those few Kawasaki people. We've got the kids. We've got clots. We've got some some odd stuff that comes up, but that. For the most part, people will be safe from this, and they will even they're getting it asymptomatically, whatever. But I know people who are afraid to go out because then they don't want to bring it back home to someone that might be vulnerable. You know, will they ever be able to hug their grandmother again?
1: Uh, yeah, right. So it, it would help a lot if we can speak bluntly. you know if if we had thoughtful, consistent uh, grown-ups running the country, and you know we had cogent messages coming from there as opposed to, you know shifting, narratives on a daily basis, because what we really need to do is risk stratify. Um, some people really need to be meticulously shielded from exposure. that would be everybody in a nursing home for sure, but you know frail elderly people, people who are both elderly and with a burden of chronic disease. Um, young healthy people, so you know anybody under 50 in, in really good health, the, the risk of a bad outcome from this infection. Is very, very remote. It's, it's a fraction of a percent. Uh, certainly, the risk of, of dying is a small fraction of a percent. So, you know, that means when you say a fraction of a percent, it means you're 99 point something percent likely to get over this. Um, and again, the younger you are and the healthier you are, the smaller the, the, the danger of dying and the smaller the danger of having even a severe symptomatic bout and the increasing likelihood that you could even have an asymptomatic infection. You know, they're, they're, there's a significant percentage of people, mostly young, healthy people actually get this infection, never even know they have it. They feel absolutely fine, but then they make antibodies and become immune. Which so is getting all...
0: scarier for people. You know, this whole, again, it's like 50% of the people that test positive, anywhere from 40 to 80, depending on which test you're looking at, the people that tested positive were asymptomatic, which now, again, we've got this invisible boogeyman,
1: yeah, see, I, I, I interpret that the other way. Yeah, it's interesting. Every time you read about that, it, it it's as if it's bad news. It's actually good news. So I think it's great. Yeah, so, so from the beginning, you know, I'm trained in epidemiology. The first thing you learn in Epi 101 is to ask, what's the denominator? So, you know, when you hear about people dying from an infection, you want to know, okay, but how many people have the infection or have had the infection? Because, you know, you tell me 10 people die, and if 12 people got the infection, that's really, really... Scary. It means almost everybody who gets this thing dies, and we don't want anybody to get this thing. But if you tell me ten people died and ten million got it, then you know the death rate is one out of a million. That's vanishingly less dangerous than crossing a street or riding your bike outside. So I need to know the denominator. We've never gotten a handle on the denominator here. You know the bit, we're cobbling it together piecemeal. We have data from Iceland, Germany. Um, South Korea we have various sampling projects around the United States we do not have yet no representative random sampling of the whole US population we absolutely should. we ought to build a data pyramid we ought to know okay let's you know with representative random sampling and say 50,000 people let's extrapolate to the 330 million of us how many have are infected how many have been infected how many are immune out of the total group exposed how many got symptoms, how many needed a hospital, how many needed the ICU, how many needed a ventilator, how many died. With that data pyramid, we would be extremely well positioned to adopt a a completely thoughtful risk-based approach to returning to normalcy. In the absence of that, again, we kind of have a piecemeal approximation of the same thing, but it tells us more or less what we need to know. People who are in good health under age 50 or so, vanishingly small probability of severe infection and and really, you know, extremely remote risk of dying of this thing. People above 80 with chronic disease, you know, the kind of people who populate nursing homes at extremely high risk. We're talking about a difference of two or three orders of magnitude. In other words, you're 100 or 1,000 times more likely to die of COVID if you're in the high risk group than the very low risk group. And then there are groups in between. Well, and we have to talk about the groups in between because the groups in between, so, you know, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s um, with chronic disease.
0: Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, pressure. right?
1: High blood. Yeah, those are modifiable risk factors. So better control of those, improving your diet, improving your activity level, dialing your weight down even just a little bit can make a huge difference. It's not just the presence or absence of high blood pressure. It's how well controlled it is. And, and it can be controlled with medication, but even better if it's controlled with lifestyle. It's not just the presence or absence of diabetes, it's how well controlled it is. There's a really potent study out of Hubei China showing a, about a fourfold differential in the risk of dying of COVID only among people who have diabetes, but based on the level of control. So fourfold, redu- mm-hmm. in other words, right. four less likely to die if your diabetes is well controlled well that's something you can manage largely with lifestyle so there's a tremendous opportunity here to get healthy um to yeah. say you know, all, all of a sudden i've got an immediate motivation to take the best possible care of myself because because you know i am worried about covid and it's not years distant it's what could happen next week I want to minimize risk. You can do that. You can make a huge difference.
0: Yeah. We've talked about it a lot. I firmly agree with you. We have so much control over our, our own protection while people are waiting for a vaccine that you and I both know maybe it will come, but it takes years to properly develop, thoroughly test it, be sure that you know, it's not risky in assorted populations. Treatments, they're not even talking about them so much anymore. It's interesting to me because you know, you'd think that that would be something that they'd be trying to get out there faster than a vaccine. Because if you can treat something, then, then you know, can heal with that sooner while you're dealing with vaccine. But mean, and they're talking about masks and keep everybody away from everybody. But meanwhile, yes, you can, you can strengthen yourself. There's so much control that people have. And while they're worrying about you know, not wanting to pass it along, the stronger you are, the less likely that you get sick, the less likely it is that you're going to pass it along to grandma, your you know, spouse who's got some health issue, your kids, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. So there are many layers to that, and and just very quickly, I, I would note that those various defenses are not mutually exclusive. In other words, they all have a role to play. So yes, we want to yeah. advance treatments. And by the way, I volunteered in New York City and did several shifts in the emergency department um, in a hospital in the Bronx. And treatment was evolving very rapidly. Even the way oxygen's used, the way people are 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 not being uh, intubated, put on ventilators, was a significant change from just the week prior. They're rolling the. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, postural treatments really seem to make a huge difference. Um... Obviously, you know remdesivir has proven to be of value. There are tests ongoing around the world of, of other treatments. Some treatments have been ruled out. Hydroxychloroquine does not look to be helpful, even though um, early anecdotes suggested that it was, and, and on and on it goes. So there, there is a lot of focus in the medical literature on treatment, that's important. Personal protective equipment, also important. Developing a vaccine that's highly effective and safe as quickly as possible, very, very good. But yeah, you know, I think the the critical point here is that a very large segment of the population is extremely low risk of a a bad outcome. And, you know, if, if we, A, think in terms of risk stratifying the population, who's at high risk and needs meticulous protection, who's at very low risk and can safely return to the world, and who's in the middle, and then, B, identify things that especially those people in the middle can do to lower their risk even further. Right we've gone a long way towards solving this problem while we're waiting for advances in treatment and and the vaccine. And, you know, my parents are 80 years old. So this issue of, you know, when can grandparents hug their grandchildren again, it's up close and personal. My mother's asking me, when can I hug my grandchildren again? And I want to be able to answer her question. Well, you know, it's either when you you get a, a really good vaccine or it's when we're down to near zero transmission out here, because many of us who are, who are young and healthy enough have been out in the world, have been exposed, have gotten over this, have made antibodies, and we have herd immunity. The idea of herd immunity is not, you know, let, let's accept some level of human sacrifice for the sake of you know, the, the, the multitudes. Now, the idea of herd immunity, uh, particularly in a disease like this that's very differential in its effects on frail, elderly, and younger, healthier people is you know, many people can safely get through this. So, you know, essentially you're, you're able to achieve the all clear without making any particular sacrifice. I mean, maybe, maybe you won't feel well for a couple of weeks, but, you know, we put up with that with most infectious diseases. We don't shut everything down. You know, it, it looks to me like we could treat COVID a lot like we treat, for example, the flu for one segment of the population and treat it like a unique threat for another segment of the population that's at much higher risk.
0: What do you see? So as the world is opening up, and there's they talk about um, many spikes with reopening, um, whether there's going to be a reduction in cases with warm weather, if it's going to come back with a vengeance come next winter, and with flu, and whether it's going to be all bad. What's your vision of what that's what's that going to look like? Again, keeping in mind the goal, can the healthcare system handle this? Versus, are we all going to be locked in our caves, which of course is creating other health issues for everybody.
1: Yeah. Well, let's start at the end. The healthcare system can certainly handle it if we say we're going to take no risks with nursing homes. We're going to take no risk with, uh, you know, frail elderly people. Because in my home state of Connecticut, 60% of the mortality is nursing homes. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Ohio, 72%. Nationally, you know, it's 50% or more. So we could, in other words, we could cut the national death rate from this pandemic in half, just with meticulous protection of nursing yep. homes, just that. And then everything we do beyond that reduces it by you know ad- additions to already having cut it in half. So there goes the problem of overwhelming the medical system right there. right? So you know a highly focused allocation of every relevant protective service. And I absolutely think we ought to do that. And well, I well, think
0: let me, can I interrupt you one second though? So if my mother's in a nursing home, which thank God she's not, but if she is, and they know that loneliness depression is an issue already in nursing homes are we going to lock them away and they can never see their family because they're not letting one in and i know we need to protect them but how do you handle that like we can't lock them lock them in a bubble forever and then they have again then they've got depression and they die of other causes there's there's a trade off of that
1: yeah, but there are lots of ways to handle it. So, and and I've actually been collaborating in in considerable detail with colleagues expert in this space about things like okay, let's assign hotels adjacent to nursing homes as clean hotels. People get tested,
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: can stay there. They service. The, the nursing home people known to be negative, a whole array of service personnel, including, including therapists and you know, essentially social engagements. And so now that's not family members. Now, what do you do with family members? Well, if family members test negative and have quarantined you know, for, for two weeks, then they could be allowed in as well. On the other hand, if your family member says, I'm out in the world and I may have been exposed, not letting you into a nursing home is probably the right thing to do until the virus stops circulating. So that, you know, essentially we have to get to some kind of all clear.
0: Do you think it's ever going to stop circulating? Well, yeah.
1: I mean, it's going to, it, 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 certainly the levels of circulation will drop to, to something that, that's fairly nominal and will have a high level of herd immunity. So I, I think there is a difficult challenge in optimal management of the various needs in a nursing home, but it can be done. It's probably beyond the scope of this discussion. I mean, I've been looking at policy yeah. documents that go on for pages about it, right. but it's doable. Difficult, but it's doable. And, and again, the problems go away when we get to the all clear. And the all clear is either everybody's received a highly effective vaccine, or we have established herd immunity and community transmission is near zero. And yes, that will happen.
0: Do you you, think the strain quite, weakening. There were those. That, there were those reports at one point that the strain was weakening.
1: Don't know. And 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 I, that was going to be my answer to a lot of those other questions. Will there be a subsequent spike? Uh, you know, is this going to come back with a vengeance in the fall? Nobody knows. Um, you know, there are some who are inclined to say we best anticipate the worst. So yes, I I think it is going to happen. There are optimists who say, I'm pretty sure it won't happen. My view is, I don't know. Um, I I think it's likely to be a very different experience in places that did a vigorous lockdown versus not. If you didn't do much of a lockdown and everybody was already exposed, I don't think there's likely to be a big second spike because you kind of got it over with. Um, in places where you immediately locked everybody away from the virus you know you, where all you did was focus on flattening the curve, nobody has antibodies, nobody's been exposed. If you let all those folks back out, I think you know essentially you'll get the spike later that you postponed. And that, that's the problem with flattening the curve. It makes sense to avoid overwhelming medical systems in a given place at a given time. But unless you have a second phase to your plan, Flattening the curve alone doesn't prevent deaths, doesn't save lives. It just changes the dates. Right.
0: Well, in case- the minute
1: the minute you release the clamps, everything you were postponing just happens a little bit later.
0: Oh, in this case, since it was so new, it did give the healthcare system a chance to catch up a little bit in terms of getting equipment in place and some some knowledge. It, it
1: did. Although, honestly, I think in New York City we mostly closed the barn doors after the horses were out. Um, there's evidence was- of uh, COVID infection in New York um, back to December.
0: Oh, I know people who had it, who were sick in it, December and December. January. December,
1: yeah. And we didn't do anything uh, about, you know, um, closing people in until right. the latter part of March. Right. So there were, and, and there was a seroprevalence study in New York City suggesting that 20% of the population has already been exposed to this. And, and, you know, frankly, I'm surprised it's only 20%. And maybe it means that, you know, a lot of people have some native resistance to this at, at average levels of exposure, which is an issue that hasn't been discussed much um but there is some evidence that prior coronavirus infection and, and just so people know coronaviruses it's a big family of viruses and many of them cause colds you know they're in the group of viruses that can cause right. the common cold so most of us have had some coronavirus infection and there's now some evidence to suggest that the immune system response to some of those coronaviruses may be activated with exposure to SARS-CoV-2 this one right and that hints at the possibility that there may be some level of native resistance among many of us, which doesn't mean you can't get it. It just means that if you have a fairly average exposure out in the world, not an intense exposure in a meatpacking plant, in a, you know, a nursing home, or in the ICU as a physician, uh, or healthcare professional, but just an average out in the street, out and about kind of exposure, you may not get it.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, is... So if you get it, even if it was asymptomatic, you clearly have antibodies. Right. Do people develop? I'll call it a little bit of antibodies. I might not get sick from it, but just by having it in the world, do you get? Does your body develop some awareness and familiarity with it?
1: That so, it, not per se, but the, but there are there there are a few possibilities. So you know, one is. You didn't get infected at all with SARS CoV 2, but you were exposed. And the reason you didn't get infected is you had antibodies to some other coronavirus. They reacted, and before this virus could set up shop in your body, it was repelled. You don't have specific immunity to it, but you have some level of partial resistance because of immunity to other related pathogens. So that you weren't infected, you don't have specific antibodies. Another option is you get exposed at a relatively low level, but enough of the viral particles get into you so that you develop specific antibodies to it. You may have no symptoms or very mild symptoms. And that appears to be quite widespread. And then there's a situation where you have have the same baseline health but the magnitude of your exposure is far greater. In other words, a much bigger infectious dose. Right. And, and this in particular you know, is likely if you are a health professional working in the ICU doing procedures with really sick people, you're right up there in their face. You know, they've got lots of virus. And you know, I've, I've consistently used an analogy to help people understand this, Sarah. So you know, it's as if you're defending a compound and you know, there's an assault on it by some right. enemy force. If it's a small enemy force and you've got good defenses, you repel them, no harm done, they never get in. If you've got good defenses and it's a somewhat larger enemy force, you repel them, but you, know, you suffer some casualties. And if it's an overwhelming enemy force, you can't repel them and they take over. Well, that's exactly how the immune system works. So right. the immune system is your defense, The compound is your body, and the enemy force is the virus. If you get just a few viral particles, your immune system effectively repels them, and you probably are left with antibodies to it. If it's a larger force, you may get sick and then repel the enemy, and you make antibodies. And if you have a massive exposure, even if you were otherwise a young, healthy person, it can be enough to overwhelm your immunity. And I think that's part of the reason we've heard about young, healthy healthcare professionals who succumb to this, I mean, those those cases, thankfully, are pretty rare relative to the numbers exposed. Um, and they might happen just as flukes, because with large enough exposure, there are anomalies we can't explain. But I, I think a lot of it has to do with the dose of exposure. Well,
0: let's, I want to spend a couple minutes. I know we don't have that much time with you. Um, just, we talked about, for perspective, some of these other germs that people, again, as you said, like, we're used to ignoring it because we know that it's around. Even some of the diseases that people, we've been taking vaccines for years and you have the anti-vaxxers because they don't remember what it was like to have rubella or, right. right, Right. And all all that sort of stuff. Um, But just perspective things, I could just mention what some of these things around MRSA, strep, coli, like some of the the pretty serious things that we all have learned to live with and that we're surrounded by all the time. Again, I'm trying, I want people to understand that COVID is not the, the be-all and end-all of of these germs, besides all those lifestyle things that will kill us every day?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the place to start would be seasonal influenza, which, you know, isn't all that far behind COVID even this year. So, you know, the latest numbers indicate that that the COVID pandemic has killed 100,000 people prematurely in the United States. Uh, influenza has killed about 65,000 or thereabouts, you know, it's a difference, but I mean, that's, that's an infection that comes every year. And yet we're pretty blase about it. And, and really it's infectious and, and, you know, and it, you know, it's year in, year out and there are years that are worse. Um, so the only real reason for complacency about flu is familiarity. It's just, you know, it's been around a long time and a lot of people who could get the flu vaccine don't. So, you know, I, I think it's a really great place to start. And then you mentioned a, a number of pathogens, but you know, I would, I would go back to, you know, there's no global uproar over the mortality toll of malaria. More people mm-hmm. have died around the world of malaria than, uh, than of COVID uh, and that's every year. Um, HIV continues to kill more people around the world every year than COVID has. And you know, so there, there are many long familiar pathogens. If even, so even if we just stay in the realm of infectious disease, which in, in modern countries is not the leading source of death. The leading source of death is chronic diseases, which are overwhelmingly preventable. So heart yes. disease, you know, cancer, stroke, diabetes, et cetera. But even just within the realm of infectious disease, there are actually many threats globally that are larger than COVID, even in the midst of a pandemic. So you know, even while we're dealing with this um, you know, once-in-a-century type crisis, there, there are actually other pathogens that circulate around the world every year that kill more people. So and
0: how about in America? Because like malaria kills a lot of people. But but they're not here. Not, and, not and, in and, my backyard in Connecticut either. And I don't go running to the jungles.
1: I know, but still, you know, if we are if we're good humanists and what we really care about is human life, I mean let's not be hypocrites. If you know if if what we're saying is we value human life and every death from an infection <laughs> is a tragedy. Right. Well, then, you know, frankly, these are our fellow humans and these are tragedies yeah. too. And, and frankly, many of these other diseases are routinely killing young people, which COVID doesn't. do.
0: Yeah. I didn't mean well. to diminish, diminish malaria in any stretch of the word. I, but know, it's, it's not a threat about here. About The people being not afraid of going out of their house here and returning to normalcy. And, you know, I want to talk about, like, you know, what's your advice to people that are returning to life? People are paranoid about letting their kids go to camp. So you know, people that are I have a question from someone about um, she has a um, she has lung disease her husband works daily and he's staying in a hotel right so when can they see each other so what how do we get how do what's the advice to people to be able to get on with their lives would you let your kids go to summer camp this summer should the, should you let your kid go to college in the fall yeah
1: yeah so I would so my my kids are are so my it, it may in fact be that um At least one of my kids. My kids are grown, but one of them is still in uh, university. And yes, if they're open in the fall, I'd certainly be perfectly happy for, for him to attend again. I think that's a very low risk setting. Um, Both, you know, I, I think he's young and healthy, so if he gets exposed, it's no big deal. And he's mostly surrounded by other young, healthy people, so if it gets transmitted, it's probably no big deal. And in fact, I think it may have been a mistake to close down universities in the first place because it took. You know, mostly young, healthy people, um, without testing them, without even taking their temperatures, and sent them home to their fifty-something parents and their seventy-something grandparents, and potentially exposed many of them. Mm. Whereas, you know, I think the 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 burden of this on college campuses would have been extremely low. There would have been a lot of, you know, minimally symptomatic infection and asymptomatic infection, and a high level of herd immunity would have. Uh, so similarly,
0: like younger kids, camps, you, you generally kids a
1: very camps. low risk. You know, so I, I I would say. As a parent, it's a really good time to make sure that you think about your child's health. You know, are, are they eating well? Um, are they active? Uh, you know, I mean, we, we don't give health the respect it deserves in the United States. It's not routinely a family value. And if you're concerned about your child's risk for COVID, all the same things that would set your child up for increased risk of diabetes down the line and so forth. Um, will put them at acutely greater risk of, of, of being in that r- small group that has a, a bad reaction to COVID. So the risk is small no matter what, just because you know, most kids get through this fine. But those rare cases of Kawasaki disease and you know, inflammatory conditions, those are mostly occurring in kids with prior conditions. And those prior conditions are things like obesity or diabetes or you know, risk for that, or in some instances, other conditions. How about so kids with like, final stuff.
0: How about kids or adults that have asthma? Unclear. I don't want to, because I know some people that they've got a daughter who's got asthma, a kid who's got got allergies, that there are things in the house. None of it's horrible. But in this environment, now mom's afraid to go out because she's afraid to bring it back to her kids. I,
1: You know, I, I think there are so many what about this, what about that permutations right. that there's no way in the span of any given discussion or interview you can address them all. What I would have routinely told people when I'm doing interviews, and sometimes the interviews are all of three minutes, and so, you know, what about <laughs> right. this, 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 and this? I say, look, it's a 1,200-page policy right. manual. Should our federal government produce it? Should the CDC produce it? Yeah. But what I, what I was going to say, is, asthma unclear, really, that it's a, that it's much of a risk, but I think it, it largely depends on the severity of asthma. You have asthma if you use an inhaler once a year because of stress or pollen, and you have asthma if you get admitted to the hospital once every three weeks. They're both asthma. Right. They're totally different conditions. So I think the severe asthma is a bigger worry. The very mild asthma, probably not at all. In terms of you know how do we address this so that all those different permutations are resolved, First, we need to think about what risk are we in in the population. I, I've actually published something; you're, you're at liberty to post it, Sarah. That it's a color coded grid we'll love it. by health status. It's in my last column on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I can share it with you afterwards. So you can it post after. it on your okay. Facebook site. Uh, but you know, essentially, there's a relatively easy way to risk stratify the population. I'm also collaborating with associates at a company called Everest Health who have a really lovely personal risk calculator for COVID, which basically you enter your age and your sex and your health status and and it tells you if you get this, the likelihood of you needing to be hospitalized is three percent. And the likelihood of you dying from it is, you know, 0.03% or whatever it is. Um, and then I think, you know, the most interesting part of that is you can then see which of the components of your risk are modifiable, and then what can you do to lower that risk even further? Then we need to translate what we know about the the mix of risk in a given home into what, what should we do. The CDC is starting to help. So the CDC website has recommended guidelines for businesses, universities, churches. And, you know, they start to get into things like, okay, if you're in the low risk group, here are the things you can safely do. If you interact with people in a higher risk group, here are the precautions you should take. And then all of this is ultimately about managing risk, which is never zero. Never zero, right? Living involves being at risk of dying. Yeah, right. The point of all of this, yes. I mean, so, right. so what you're looking to do is strike a balance between, I mean, after all, at, at some point, if you're protecting life, but no one's allowed to live, it becomes pointless, right? right. So we want to protect life and the opportunity to live it. And that means we're going to have to accept some level of risk out in the world. So kids, generally healthy, low risk. Young adults, generally healthy, low risk. When we interact with people at higher risk, obviously the safest thing to do is stay completely away from them. However, I would say, no, let's only do that for the most extreme at risk. So, you know, frail elderly people, nursing homes, you know, we need some sort of firewall there. You only get to see them if you've tested negative, that sort of thing. But you, know, you have family members at slightly higher risk. So, okay, you know, we avoid direct touching. We keep, a, even within a home, we can keep some you know, re- degree of distance. Um, if there is getting together in small groups, there may be a case for selective use of personal protective equipment, even in personal settings. Mm-hmm. Because the value of that, you know, it's not a guarantee that you don't get exposure, but we were talking before about dose. If I wear a mask and I carry the, the virus, much less of it's going to reach you. And if much less of it reaches you, even if you get it, it, it will be a dose that doesn't overwhelm your immune system, right? So, so it's, there is no one-size-fits-all answer. That's the whole notion of risk stratification. Mm-hmm. When low-risk people interact with other low-risk people, maybe no precautions at all are required. When low-risk people interact with slightly higher-risk people, some moderate precautions are required. When anybody interacts with a really high-risk person, more intensive precautions are required. And and again, all of that could be laid out in more time than we want to to give it here, but it's available in writing. It's available on the CDC website. A lot of companies, a lot of states are, are working through the particulars of that now. So essentially what I'd say to any one of us worrying about that is we don't all have to make it up. We just have to stay attentive to what's out there and adopt the best practices into our own lives. But we want to protect life And we want to preserve the capacity to live at both. And I think the idea that we're going to have zero risk of COVID is incompatible with reality because, again, living involves some risk of dying from miscellaneous stuff. So we want to get the risk of COVID down to the irreducible minimum, but not at the expense of being able to live.
0: That's fabulous. All right. And again, in the bigger picture, we all can do lifestyle choices, dietary choices to reduce our risk to it. We absolutely
1: can. And yeah, just uh, by the way, just quickly to throw in there. So uh, my company, Diet Ideas, is a B2B company. We we license to businesses in the health sector in particular, but we've made the tool freely available during this time so people can assess their diet, compare it to what's optimal for immunity, and we show you what the differences are. Um and then offer personalized tips for how to make up that difference. So you can um, learn more about that at dietid.com.
0: DietID.com. Okay, great. Dr. David Katz, thank you so very much. You're so busy and I really appreciate you taking the time for us. And everybody out there, David Katz, MD.com. You can learn more about him and Diet ID and True Health Initiative. And I don't have the URLs written down there, but we will get them on the on the pages. And I'm sure if you Google them, they are well they're well up there. All right. Thank you so very much. I'm talking to Dr. David Katz of the True Health Initiative about having a healthy perspective on the many germs that surround us every day. This has become a focus of all of our lives as we're now on heightened germ alert as a result of COVID-19. Dr. Katz helps protect patients from the many germs and other health challenges that surround them every day through a healthy diet and lifestyle. He's just one of thousands of top experts who contribute to our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, where we provide guidance to help you live happier, healthier, and wealthier. Our experts share insights not just on living a healthy life, but on all aspects of your life, including managing your money, smart home repair, emotional happiness, how to find bargains, unique travel destinations, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.